Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Blaze Radio Network. And now, the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in the things that never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, On Demand, on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome to every single happy warrior and to every happy warrior in training. Every wannabe happy warrior to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Here the radio show where I speak about the things that really matter to you. The radio show where I reveal how the world really works. And the way the world really works is that uh, you have to be aware that change is constant and that to desire to cling to the present and to uh, have things remain just the same tomorrow as they were yesterday uh, is unreasonable. That's not how the world really works. Change is a constant, and that is an inevitability we have to become accustomed to, and when there is change, it is more important than ever to be able to depend on those things that never change. And one of the things that never changes is the relationship between fathers and children. Now, I'm going to speak for the moment particularly about fathers and children. I'll tell you why. It is because with very few exceptions, the overwhelming number of women that I have met Single women are eager to bring a baby into the world. The overwhelming majority of women I've known have been eager to have a child. That cannot be said for men. I have known many men who might have been already in their 30s, some in their 40s, and not at all aware of needing children and not having any deep desire of any kind for children. And so I'm addressing mostly men, although in the context of getting a better insight into the minds of men, uh, women will find it useful as well. So, So to start with, I want to uh, ask you to imagine the following scenario, right? It's a little bit, it's a little bit eerie, but I want you to ask yourself, you've just been given a week to live. You've had a consultation with a doctor. You went to get a second opinion. You couldn't believe what you heard. You, you went to get a third opinion and sadly, All the doctors agree. It's tragic and unfortunate, and they all wish they could do something about it, but they can't. You've got a week to live. What do you do? What are the things you engage in during that week? It's a worthwhile question. What would you do? Would you uh, update your investment portfolio and uh, rearrange your assets to favor the short term? I don't think so. I mean, one week is rather a short term. So what are you going to do? And uh, I'm not going to answer that for you because you can do so for yourself. What would you do? How would you spend that week? Doing what? Would you um, start studying for a new credential that would qualify you for an advance at work? 
don't think so. So what would you do? Would you plant a vineyard? Probably not. I mean, at, at that point, you're not even buying green bananas. So what would you do? Perhaps you'll get a better sense of it, of what you might do, if we look at the alternative. Okay, so scratch that scenario now. And now a totally new scenario. You've gone to a doctor and you've gone for a second opinion and a third opinion. And medical schools around the world have sent delegates to come and talk to you and examine you. But the bottom line is everybody agrees there's something absolutely bizarre that has happened with your metabolism and you are going to live for the next 250 years. That's right. In your current state of physical health, it's not that you're going to become aged and decrepit. No, you're going to stay just the way you are for the next 250 years. May I ask, how are you likely to spend the next week? And so that's really the question I'm asking you. I've asked it twice. If you discover that you have no time left to speak of, what do you do for the next week? And now the next week is only a tiny, infinitesimally small fraction of all the time you have left. What do you do that week? This is actually worth contemplating. In this case, I'll give you an idea of the sort of things you might actually tend to do. Well, uh, you might well indeed start an investment portfolio that, uh, you know, that might take 70 years to come to fruition, right? Uh, just recently, somebody dear to me asked my opinion on investing in some of the companies that are making uh, small modular reactors, nuclear power stations that are, are easily and quickly set up. And on the surface of it, it seems a very good thing. And I, uh, before responding, I discussed it with a nuclear engineer whose opinion I regard very highly. And, and he made the excellent point with which I could not disagree, which is that, uh, you know, the current mood is still so anti-nuclear, inexplicably and insanely, um, that it could be a very long time. Well, if you receive news that you're going to live for 250 years, well, yes, that would be a fine time to invest in nuclear power because even if it takes 30, 40, or 50 years, but it's inevitable. There is absolutely no question whatsoever that humanity is going to need nuclear power. When the current madness, when the current hysteria of windmills has worn off and people are discovering that the cost of their electricity everywhere is getting as high as it is in California and people are realizing that uh, it's not any fun being cold in winter or hot in summer and they would like to be able to use their heating and their air conditioning, at that point, guess what? It will become politically practicable for nuclear power to be restored, and that's what's going to happen. The only trouble is nobody knows how long that is going to take. But if you're going to live for 250 years, I say dive right in. Put a whole bunch of your money in low-priced nuclear power stocks because it is going to come. Its day will arrive. There is no doubt whatsoever. So here's the big difference between how you might spend next week if you hear that it is your last week, well, it might well be a variation of eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, right? That's, that's what it might be when you think about it. It might be a variation of that, oh, I'd spend the time with my loved ones, you know, somebody might say, but it's just a variation, oh, I do the things I, I really want to do. Conversely, um, discovering that you're going to live for 250 years you probably are less likely to say, let's eat, drink, and be merry. You're likely 
to be able to do very productive, long-term, valuable things. You know, you might start, uh, oh, I, you know what, I, you can make your own list. It's, uh, I mean, it, it, it would be amazing. You'd start, think, be th you'd be thinking long-term. And long-term thinking is very much more beneficial in our lives than short-term thinking is. When we take into full account the future, not just the present, we're liable to make much better decisions. People whose life revolves around only the present tend to live for gratification. And people for whom the future is very important tend to invest rather than spend. And they tend to build for the long term. And so it's of enormous value to be able to think in futuristic terms. It's very valuable to kind of think in terms of living for 250 years, even though it's not a practical reality. But wait, is it not a practical reality at all? Ah, and that's where we come to the question of children. You know, years ago, uh, it was about 2000 actually, um, there was an eerie movie brought out by uh, Columbia Pictures. And uh, it was called A Vertical Limit. And uh, the British actor Stuart Wilson played a dad who took his, uh, they look like, you know, teenage son and daughter on a mountain. Family's crazy about mountain climbing. And they're climbing up a cliff on a beautiful afternoon. And uh, they're having a wonderful time. And they're bantering between each other. And all of a sudden, somebody higher up the mountain has an accident and drops and the next thing is that uh, they are this family is dangling perilously um, with the the son and the daughter closest to a uh, piece of climbing equipment wedged into the rock, but which is perilously loose. And the father is at the bottom of the rope, and uh, and it becomes apparent that the three of them weigh too much for the fitting that is coming loose out of the crack in the cliff face. And uh, the father takes out a knife and he cuts the rope just above him so that he drops to his death and his son and his daughter survive. And then the rest of the movie goes on and, and follows. The daughter becomes a, a famous climber. The son goes into other areas and on it goes. Anyway, the only reason I mention it is because um, the, the film created um, a very strong gut instinct in its audience during those first opening minutes because everybody sort of found themselves saying to them, well, you know, if, if I'm a father, would I do that? You know, would I do it? But nobody dismissed it as preposterous because all human beings understand that our children are more important than we are in a sense. And, uh, and they are our future. And so you can probably see already where this is going. Uh, in a nutshell, gentlemen who uh, do not have children and do not yet um, know that they need to have children, children are your future. Children is how you acquire immortality. Children is how you live as if you're going to live for 250 years. Children are the key. And children are why you need to be filled with tremendous gratitude and profound appreciation to your wife who gives you children, the woman who makes it possible for you to become a father. It's a huge thing. And so that is what I want to explain uh, in just a little bit more detail, if you'll allow me to do that. First, uh, however, I must tell you that last week I devoted the show to a different view of Ukraine. And what I was really discussing was how we have seen um, not only the United States of America, the world as well, but America particularly, uh, incredibly docile and also 
susceptible to mass hysteria. I think that uh, history will show that the American response to COVID was an instance of mass hysteria. The lockdowns, the willingness of the population, and it's in other countries as well. Australia was equally shocking. The willingness of the population to be shut down, uh, the, the willingness of people to accept the unscientific and preposterous notion that masks all over your face are somehow effective at curtailing the spread of COVID, about which in the final analysis, nobody knew very much about. And uh, as a matter of fact, at the time I record this in March 2022, uh, we still do not have a clear understanding of COVID, uh, its transmissibility, and its origin. It's not even clear. All we know for sure is that it did not come from the uh, uh, bat market or the fish market in Wuhan, and in all probability, it did come out of the Wuhan Virological Research Institute, uh, deliberately or accidental. Who knows? We just don't know. And yet, nonetheless, there was a willingness to buy into the mass hysteria not very different from the Salem witch, witch trials of the 17th century in the Northeast United States in the Massachusetts colony. So uh, I, I think that that kind of um, docility and susceptibility to mass hysteria, uh, which we've seen before and most particularly during COVID, predisposed America's population to buy in to the government's picture and the uh, complicity of mainstream media uh, to depict this in the way they did. I presented it somewhat differently. Now, the reason I did this was because in order for you to thrive, in order for you to thrive, you need five areas of your life to really be increasingly successful. You need five areas of your life to grow and to prosper. Those five areas are finance, family, friendships, fitness, your, your physical health, and faith. And those five areas all interact with one another in very crucial ways. Uh, ways in which I explain in um, in much of our work and many times here on the show. Uh, the, the key thing, however, is that in developing these areas and in overcoming the obstacles, it is very necessary to be able to think independently. You have to learn to make yourself invulnerable to the outside pressures, not only of media and experts. I've told you before, run for your life when you read or hear somebody say, experts say. You want to be very, very careful with what, what we have made of experts in modern life today. And so that is something that one has to be very, very careful of. You've also got to be careful of trying to become invulnerable to group pressure when a lot of people you know all start believing or thinking the same thing. By the way, whenever a lot of people all say the same thing, that's a pretty good sign that something's up. And so, yes, be, be cautious. But one of the, the, the best ways of being able to focus on your five Fs and to develop them is to not be lonely and isolated. And that's why we have been so emphatic over the last little while about building a community of happy warriors. And that's why we took the website wehappywarriors.com. And uh, it is also why we encourage people to connect with each other. Let me give you an example. One of the great things about being part of the community of happy warriors, by being a member of the happy warrior community, is that you get to join in the conversation and the discussion and the debate uh, on the podcast. And so the um, 
if you uh, if you register in on We Happy Warriors, you could easily go to the conversation page and then go to the section where the conversation is about the podcast, or I'll leave a, a, a URL to it in the description below, okay? Go to the description of this podcast, and you'll see a link to the discussion page of We Happy Warriors. And uh, all you do is you can join in. And so, uh, for instance, on the uh, this last week when I spoke about Ukraine, uh, Marco wrote, I've also come across accounts from Russian-speaking people in Ukraine. Um, the Ukrainian government has been behaving appallingly towards them by effectively banning the Russian language from education, media, advertising, banks, etc. As a result, kids who speak Russian at home are forced to speak what is a foreign language to them at school. Elderly people have a very hard time getting what they need from their local bank or post office because everything is in a language they don't understand. Many Russian websites and media outlets have been banned in Ukraine. We keep on getting this picture of Ukraine as a young modern democracy and Russia as a totalitarian regime. Meanwhile, people in Russia can freely access any website or news outlet they desire. And there's nothing stopping a theoretical group of Ukrainians in Russia from setting up a Ukrainian-speaking school for their kids. I don't condone Putin's lies and the killing of human lives, but at the same time, I'm starting to get the sense that we're being told what we're being told is only one side of the story. It is also the narrative that best serves our political leaders, as the rabbi explained well in the podcast. And then Tom responded to him and said, the military invasion and slaughter of the Ukrainian population is a disproportional response to the relatively minor restrictions of the Russian language in the Ukraine. Uh, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, not a head for a fingernail. And Marco responds to Tom and says, of course, Tom, the morality of invading a sovereign country and killing people in the process is obviously not up for debate. I was simply trying to come to terms with the rabbi's advice that we shouldn't be getting involved with this conflict. And the more I read about these conflicting accounts from both sides, the more I get the sense that this is something we don't fully understand, that the narrative of an oppressive tyranny Invading a free and democratic country isn't an exact representation of reality, and so on and more. And there's a whole lot more. But uh, I join in, I read it all, I find it fascinating, and I pop in from time to time with my own thoughts as well. And so uh, that is something you might want to take a look at. I think it's high time for us to find strength in unity and uh, for us to find strength in community he here in the Happy Warriors community. So do become a member, Happy Warrior. Join us and uh, let me know that you've joined. I'd love to meet you online. And uh, if enough of us get enthusiastic about it, uh, I'm all for arranging a few actual real-life Happy Warrior get-togethers where we can actually meet one another in reality, not just online. But online is an awfully good start to begin with. There's no question about that because we are all forging, as Happy Warriors, we are forging our own paths in a society that is moving more and more not only towards uniformity, but an intolerance of anything that departs from the doctrine of uniformity. But that, after all, if you think about it, is part of socialism. And there's no question that we are, unfortunately, moving towards the Tower of Babel model, the Marxist model, the French Revolution model, the model that uh, makes us all identical to one another, and that, of course, is why it is that uh, that bureaucracies in every country are doing everything possible to get you out of your car and into public transport. In they they could surely invest some of the money in building more roads and widening roads and making travel by car easy. They don't want that. It's the uniformity that is the goal. Everybody in public transport. It's one of the reasons that if you take a look at public housing, housing created by the city or the county or the government in every country, uh, whether it was Moscow during the Soviet era or Chicago right now, when governments uh, in the current mood build housing, it's all identical. Everybody's housing looks exactly like everybody else's. And that move towards uniformity is something that the happy warrior is fighting. 
if for no other reason, and there are plenty other reasons, but if for no other reason that an economy dies in a uniform society, because economy thrives on the idea that I have something you want more than I want it, and so I can sell it to you, or I have a service I can provide for you because it's one you can't do for yourself. But the more uniform we are, the more alike to one another we are, the less capable we are of building an economy. And so our very finances depend on individuality. That's a crucial part of everything. And so in order to maintain our individuality, you need to be allied with a group of other people who are also trying to defend their individuality and respect your individuality. No, they don't just respect your individuality, they celebrate it. And, uh, and I'm sure you're similar to me in this respect that I love meeting people who are out of the box. I love people who are different, uh, people who march to their own drummer, uh, people who have their own sheet of music. I love that because it's good for society. It's good for everybody. And the uh, socialistic trend towards uniformity is damaging, it's destructive, it's dangerous, and it's bad for your health. And one of the great and delightful challenges of being a parent, a mother or a father, is trying to raise children who are individuals. That's one of the reasons that uh, the Bible says in Hebrew, Chanoch Lenar al pi darko, uh, raise, educate each child according to its own way. And uh, that is in Proverbs 22.6. Um, by the way, if you don't yet, if you haven't looked at the Rabbi Daniel Appen recommended Bible, please go to our website, rabbidanielappen.com, and read up about it. Uh, I really believe that every household ought to have a Bible, and this is a particularly beautiful example in both the Hebrew and the English of all the Hebrew scriptures. So uh, Proverbs 22, 6, educate each child in its own way. Now, one of the points that Solomon is making in Proverbs 22, 6, is that if you start educating a child consistently from the youngest age, then when that child grows up, uh, the, those lessons, those early parental lessons become an enduring part of the child's makeup. And uh, even now, uh, modern psychology is only fully understanding recently just how influential the early years are between parent and child, how absolutely crucial. And it's based on this uh, sentence where Pro uh, Solomon is making this very point that as a parent, you have the power to shape the future of this child. And you've just got to be consistent in how you raise the child from the very beginning, from birth. Actually, as I've taught at other times, from before birth. But that's a different topic for another day. But for now, very much a case of understanding that um, uh, raising our children is a delightful adventure. And the second aspect that Solomon is making clear in Proverbs 22.6 is the focus on raising a child in its own way. In other words, we don't, as hard as it is, by the way, the, the tendency is overwhelmingly strong to just raise all your children in exactly the same way. You know, the, the old English sergeant major model of a father. Uh, this is it. This is the rules. This is how it is. And it doesn't work that way. The, the, the challenge as a father and the, uh, the excitement of individual growth, the, the way children compel you to become a bigger, better, more powerful man is by um, you realizing that you have to overcome your natural instinct to raise each child in exactly the same way and to do your best to try and discover the child's natural nature early on and to educate the child in accordance, in a way that takes into account the child's individual nature, um, and you know, in every possible way. Some children are studious, some children are more active, and you, you design and find a way to make it possible for, for each child to reach his and her fullest potential. I don't think I have to tell you where I stand on the question of sending your child to a one-size-fits-all geek. 
That stands for Government Indoctrination Camp, uh, the institutions that used to be known as public schools. You know, you send your child to a government school, and all that's happening is indoctrination, and all that's happening is standardization, and all your children are, all the children, they are being forced into a mold that makes them all come out with exactly the same uniform outlook. And very often that outlook is against uh, parental uh, roles, against the traditional family. So uh, the, the challenge of Solomon in Proverbs 22.6, raise each child in its own walk, in its own way, uh, almost impossible to do at a gig. Very, very hard indeed. So you need to be aware of that because nobody has as much invested in your children as you do. Nobody cares as much about your children as you do. And uh, I would also want to tell you that I know many husbands, and I've encouraged many husbands in this practice. And if you're not yet aware of this, listen carefully. And if you are a wife and mother listening, then make sure your husband hears this section of this podcast when I say that the right and appropriate thing to do is for a husband to bestow upon his wife a beautiful gift, perhaps a lovely piece of jewelry, uh, upon the birth of every child. Because he needs to say thank you. It really does. I mean, the, 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 the child making the father is much more important than the father making the child. The father making a child is a purely biological process very straightforward and uh, capable of being performed in less than a minute. It's a very, very simple process. But a child makes a father. Now that is something extraordinary. What happens to a man whose wife has given him a baby? That's extraordinary. And so, yes, it's a, it's a reason for enormous appreciation and gratitude to one's wife because what you've just been given is immortality. And, uh, and that changes everything, the way you look after yourself. I mean, it's almost a, a truism. Everybody knows that after a man has a baby, after a man's wife has a baby, and, um, and I, I do stress that part of it because the, uh, the forces of the culture are, are very much opposed to that. Um, it's interesting, but in the beginning of 2022, the New York Times, which used to have a section, it used to have a page about marriages, it's been changed. It's rather extraordinary, but it truly has been changed into something ro- really rather different. Um, and the uh, they, they've called the page now um, Mini Vows. And... Uh, it's, it's not necessarily people who are married. Uh, it's people who have made various different types of commitments to one another. Look, the New York Times has always been a, a, a very good barometer of the direction in which the culture is moving. And uh, that the culture is, is moving in a direction hostile to a man and a woman marrying one another for life. There's no question about that and that the culture is hostile to the idea that a baby should only be brought into the world by a man and a woman married to one another, hostile to that. Now, the New York Times doesn't like the fact that there is so much damage to the culture in terms of uh, criminally focused young people, uh, in terms of economic damage to the culture, but the New York Times does not connect the dots that link the abolition of marriage and the destruction of the family to growing crime and declining economic vitality. For that, you need a rabbi. And as you know, I humbly submit my candidacy for your consideration. And so, uh, yes, the, uh, the, the, the idea that a man can 
acquire immortality by marrying a woman and then having and raising children between them. It's a very exciting thing. Yes, it's, it is almost a truism that once a man becomes a father, he very often gives up some of the dangerous activities he used to enjoy beforehand. Uh, it's well known that extreme sports are practiced almost exclusively by single males. But when a man has a child, he starts taking care of his physical health a little better. So that's one area in which family and fitness coincide. All right, you, you know that, the, uh, that the, the, the schematic for your five Fs is um, uh, five, the five Fs arranged in a circle with lines joining each one to each other one. And you, you quickly see that, yes, oddly enough, even my finances are connected to my family. Yeah, sure, in a very huge way. Because it's not an accident that, in general, men with children dramatically out-earn single men. Now, when I say men with children, I am talking about men married to the mother of those children and the two of them raising those children together. I say that because there are plenty, plenty, plenty very poor men in America who have impregnated a lot of women and who have many children floating around, but children with whom they have zero contact. Uh, that does not do anything at all for your finances. It goes without saying. It's pretty obvious. So because, because it is so innate for a man to care deeply about his offspring and, um, and to be very devoted to them, uh, it makes perfect sense that a father would regard the ability to provide for his children as much more important than providing for himself. And it's, you know, it's, it's again something well known that if you give a man the choice of working hard so he can buy a Lamborghini sports car or working hard so that his children can get a good education and that uh, perhaps to work hard that his wife doesn't have to work and can be focused on raising his children. Uh, most men will work much harder to benefit their children than they will to get a sports car. We uh, men are driven in that direction. And so consequently, the presence of children in my life, my children basically give me uh, the the 250-year time span of longevity because I'm now willing to work hard and I'm willing to be future-oriented. I'm willing to diminish risks. I'm willing to uh, make certain that there will be assets and uh, value into the future long beyond my life in order that my children can benefit. But you see, that benefits all of society. That benefits my entire country. It benefits everyone around me. That is the importance of family. And that's why it is that when the connection between fathers and children diminish, so does the economy. You've got to be able to connect the dots, you see. The New York Times cannot connect the dots, but I can and you can. And it makes a very big difference. You see, the relationship between children and their mothers, that pretty much always remains. That is a fundamental biological reality, right? Uh, my llama, after many months of not seeing her, still recognized his mother. But he certainly didn't recognize his father, wouldn't, wouldn't have known his father at all. If you've ever seen... Puppies, you know, if you, if you happen to have a, a dog that has puppies and you watch the connection those puppies have with mom. But how about with the dog that uh, impregnated mom? 
No, no connection there. Biologically, all creatures are linked to their mothers. And so human beings on one level, you know, according to the first story of creation in Genesis chapter 1, I explain all this in the Scrolling Through Scripture online uh, course on my website. Um, according to that first depiction of creation, uh, human beings are creatures, and so naturally we have strong connections with our mothers. And you can go and visit Death Row at San Quentin Prison in Northern California, and you will find uh, hardened convicts, people who have committed multiple murders, and they'll have a tattoo on the arm with, uh, with you know, the word mother or mom or maybe their mother's name. Uh, you, you, we we do we do have that. Um, I uh, was in a restaurant with Mrs. Lappin recently, and a lovely waitress was taking care of us, and she was rather a beautiful girl. And uh, I was struck by a, a, a not an attractive looking tattoo down her arm, and I commented and I said, "What? Tell me about that tattoo." And uh, she showed me it was a French expression that said something like, the love of my mother. And, um, and she said she did it to honor her mother. Thought, okay, fine. There it is. Yes, this, this is a biological reality. Uh, it's no big deal. It's every animal has it. We, we all feel a connection to our mothers. But how about connection to father? Now, that is much more unusual and that's one of the reasons that in a biblical tradition, the child is named after the father. The family takes the father's name because we're doing everything we possibly can to go counter to nature and make sure that human beings have a connection to dad, not just to mom. And the truth is that the only way and, and I know that there are going to be divorced men and they're going to be single fathers who are going to um, try and argue this with me. And I have argued it in, in many um, public occasions and at lectures. Uh, but there is no winning this argument, I'm afraid. The, the simple facts are that the only way for a man to have a real and a deep and an enduring relationship with his children is if his wife wants him to, because it rests totally in her power. And that's part of the wonder of having a wife, is that not only do you have biological creatures called children, but she makes sure that they are not just your biological offspring, but that they are your link to immortality. And a wife does that by engendering in the children the relationship with father, how they see her relate to her husband, and the ways that she encourages them to follow the fifth commandment of honor your father and your mother. Yes, dad makes sure that children honor mom, but mom's job is to make sure that children honor dad, because if each is reduced trying to demand honor and respect from children uh, to themselves, they come across as fools and buffoons. They achieve absolutely nothing at all. And so uh, that idea of a link to your children, which really gives you that immortality, which really energizes you and motivates you to create indefinitely and powerfully, and effectively, that all depends on your wife. And part of the uniformity that is promoted in many societies around the world today, whether it comes from socialism or whether it's progressivism or whatever uh, particular um, cultural force drives it, that movement towards egalitarianism, everything the same, and men and women are the same, rich and poor should go away. Uh, one of the problems that are encountered by government policymakers, and I ask you to just put yourself in their position for a moment. 
they are dedicated to this idea that everybody is equal, equal outcomes. This was never the original idea of the American founding fathers. What I think everybody intuitively wants to see from their government is equal treatment under the law. That for sure. But when government takes upon itself the role of creating equal outcomes, then all we have done is opened the doorway to tyranny and to control and to oppression. And I'll explain to you why. Think about this for a moment. Is it really possible for government to bring about an equality of outcome between two different young men or young women? Think for a moment. Um, let me describe the two. Uh, it's it's going to be a sad contrast, but it is real. It is what we see today. Um, the first one is a child who uh, lives with his siblings in a home with his natural father and his natural mother who were married before they brought him into the world. And these uh, parents, there are even a few grandparents in the picture. So this young um, boy or young girl, think of a 16-year-old, is part of a family of three generations. Maybe even his father or his mother work in a family business that was started by the grandparents. That's not an uncommon scenario. And uh, and maybe that is the business that is going to be able to pay for his education. And maybe it's even the business that's going to give him a job. And it's the business in which he worked during summer vacations all the way through school, developing a work ethic and learning skills and discovering how to interact with customers and with clients and with other people. Now you look at this child and he's, uh, he knows how to carry himself. He has a commitment and a self-discipline. He's able to, uh, uh, to do all kinds of things, all because he is the third generation of a structured, functional, effective living family. Now we look at another 16-year-old. This 16-year-old is raised as tragically many are in America today by a single mother who has never been married. He barely knows his siblings, of which he has a number, because all were fathered by different men, none of whom are in the lives of these children at the present time. Um, his mother has a drug problem. Um, he was largely raised on the streets and in front of a television set. There is a grandma in the picture, but... Um, it's pretty rough. He's not doing particularly well at school. Nobody has helped him ever with homework. He doesn't have a culture of self-improvement and a culture of self-discipline. Uh, if anything, he has a culture of self-gratification. And now you put these two 16-year-olds alongside one another. And I ask you now, as a government policy expert, what do you think you can do to give these two boys and all girls an equal shot at life. You see, there's nothing you can do, nothing at all. It doesn't work that way. So it's all a big pretense. It's really a scam. It's a sort of a Ponzi scheme because the government takes taxes from you in order to help the poor and in order to make it possible for everybody to have a shot at success. They can't. It's totally outside the power of government. They take your money. They take your income tax in order to be able to do that. But not only does the evidence of the last 60 years disprove the viability, right? Ever since the New Deal was created, Actually, it's even longer ago than that. Uh, but ever since the attempt on the part of government to act uh, outside the Constitution, speaking about America, and to uh, make everybody the same and to make sure everybody has equality, it can't happen because far more is conferred by family than by government. And so these are the reasons why... At least some of them are some of the reasons, some of the things I say to men who tell me that they don't need children. Sometimes they rationalize it in 
uh, utopian terms and sometimes in uh, terms of pseudo-morality. I've often had men tell me, I don't believe that it is moral to bring a child into a world with so many problems. Uh, do you know how serious climate change is? Do you know that every human being contributes to climate change? I don't think I should bring a child, all this stuff. You'll pardon me if I don't sound terribly excited about it. I've heard it many times, and at no stage does it ever sound any more intelligent than it did the first time. But this is this is what happens, and I, I speak to men, and I say to them, look, let me tell you something. I want you to understand. In 30 or 40 years' time, you're going to be 70 years old. And the world's still going to be here. I promise you that. The sun is still going to rise every morning. And I promise you the sea levels will not have wiped out Miami and New York. None of that will have happened. I promise you. Remember, you heard it here first. But you're going to be 70 years old. And you're not going to have any children in your life. You're going to have no family. And you are going to be filled with regrets so horrifying that you will find it hard to live with them. Now, wise up and try and understand how the world really works. Try and understand that the more that things change, the more we need to depend on those things that never change. And one of those things is the relationship between the generations and how much you are cutting yourself off by not being the start of a new generation, by not being the creator of a new family. It's, uh, it's tragic and it's unthinkably sad, but there are men that uh, I have not managed to persuade and who have continued on through life um, in a childless fashion, and very often that also means with a wifeless life because most wives want babies. That's why I've felt that much of the subject matter of today's show, uh, most women listening to me are going to be yawning. Most women have probably turned me off already and tuned me out saying, yeah, this is old stuff. Who, who needs to listen to this? We've, we've always known this. We've known this since we were adolescents. But men do not know this. And that's why I feel that I am performing a public service by making it as clear as possible that the family section of the five F's is more important than you imagine. But all the five F's are, and it's always easier to work on them in company. So click in the link below and uh, visit our uh, discussion page for, the, for members in the We Happy Warriors community. Make sure you're part of that community, become a member, and let us all move onwards together, helping one another and encouraging and inspiring one another as we move ahead, each of us growing our faith, our finances, our fitness, our friendships, and our families. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Till next week, God bless. Stream and subscribe to more Blaze Media content at theblaze.com slash podcasts.